0: I have to say, too, I mean, the last couple of weeks have really brought this out. You, you would be hard-pressed to find a church of our size and youth with music that is anywhere approaching that. I mean, these people serve us really beautifully and so well. So if you see them just after the service, just say thank you. It's really, really incredible. And, you know, there's several people that aren't up here leading this week, but just the rotation of people that come up and sing into these microphones, I'm always like, oh my goodness, so uh, just, I I don't want you to miss that, because it's really easy to be like, oh, that's what church music sounds like, I've spent time in churches, it is decidedly not, Um, so just thank you all for leading us so well, Uh, Derek and Alfredo, and just everybody who participates in that, we so appreciate you, all right. We, my name is Ian. Uh, if you're new here, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we're, we're a brand new church, and there's a lot of really beautiful and committed people that make this happen every week. And just to be here and to worship Jesus. And we've been talking about everybody's favorite topic themselves, or yourself. And we've been, this is kind of an extended series where we've been talking about the self. And last week we focused on the, the simple question, what is your purpose? Like, what are you here to do? And we've you know we've offered all the caveats of your doing always flows from your being. As Pete Schizero says, we are human beings, not human doings. Right? And so that's why at this church you will never answer the question, how are you, with busy? Because that is not a state of being. That is a state of doing. Um, and so we've been talking about the self, and we asked this question: what is your purpose? How out of the love of God that he is so lavished uh, upon you, do you live out your purpose, your ambition? And, and I really encourage you. I know there's this week-to-week nature of church where you kind of, you sort of hear the thing and then you hear the next thing the next week. I really want to encourage you to sit with that. And because the journey towards purpose is is exactly that. It's a journey. It's a, it's a process. It's not something I have arrived at as a Christian of... You know, some 20 years. It's nothing I've arrived at as a pastor. I'm still discerning and and carving that out, and I I suspect that is true for most of us in here. But I do want to encourage you to be intentional about that. And last week, I just gave several lenses and questions. Again, they're not the only questions you could ask, but I think they're a good starting place for understanding what are you here to do, and why does the world need the gift that is yourself received from God to be offered And I suspect that the life of this church, the life of our shared fellowship together and the the life of this city, this neighborhood, this larger geography needs us individually and collectively to be living out our purpose intentionally. And today, we want to move into a topic that is not, you know, so far a a field from our normal discourse. We want to talk about what it means to care for the self that you've been given. We want to talk about self-care. Now, in our country, self-care is a buzzword for a billion-dollar industry, right? Books like Girl, Wash Your Face. (laughs) Did some research (laughs) on that this week. Uh, So many Instagram wellness influencers promote self-care as a means of defying the lies, putting away the stereotypes. Usually, a lot of this stuff is directed towards women. Uh, The advice is not all that bad, but it's stuff like drink water, have a mini dance party when you feel the urge, plan a menu to eat healthy, confront your negativity, get a tomato plant, take a yoga class, meditate have dinner with friends, say no to dinner with friends, eat breakfast, but not too much, right? Do some planks, make lists to make sure you're productive, get some sleep, and then meditate some more. Now, this kind of advice is not only offered to women. I was on a popular men's blog this week called The Manual, strong Men, and their list for a men's health self-care regimen Get active, lift weights, run, get enough sleep because all of that releases endorphins. Uh, Recite positive affirmations because they rewire your brain for positivity and rid it of toxicity. Add some CBD to the mix for joint pain and good feelings. Adaptogens, that was a new one for me. They're herbs and uh, such they regulate stress and cortisol levels, burn some essential oils, get a solid bedtime routine, get a weighted blanket, and meditate. Now, as you can see, none of this is bad in and of itself, right? Not, not a single one of it. it. Some of it's really good advice. Like if you, especially if you drink a lot of coffee, you should drink a lot of water. Uh, otherwise, you'll be a crazy person. But Jacques Eliel called our society a technological society. And he says, technique is the totality of methods rationally arrived at and have absolute efficiency in every field of human activity. And if you look at the heart behind most of these sort of self-care suggestions, there's always this like biological purpose to it. It always has this means of saying, this is why you do it, because it's efficient, because it's productive, because it will make you the best version of yourself. You don't simply do something because it's enjoyable, because it's beautiful. You no, you do something to mess with your brain chemistry. You do something because it's going to make you more productive at work or a more eligible mate or uh, all these other sorts of things. And Jacques O'Yell points this out. He says, we, we maximize efficiency. Our society craves absolute efficiency. Life hacks, the quickest way up and to the right. Now, again, not bad in and of itself, right? And Alan Noble points this out. He says, efficiency or our bent towards technological application, towards technique, has many healthy applications when it is not treated as an ultimate good. But according to Eliel, technique does not easily abide other virtues. For example, it's a wonderful thing to develop a more efficient way to farm so that you can provide more food for your neighbors. That's a beautiful impulse, right? But When your concern for efficiency leads you to ignore the way a farming technique harms your neighbors or the environment, you are under the spell of technique. And if you've ever read any of Wendell Berry, he talks a lot about this, about how we have so eroded the topsoil because of the efficiency of certain crops, crops like soy, and their many uses. What they've done is they've served to eliminate some of the local uh, things that make crops flourish, and, and cause the topsoil to continue to be healthy. Alan Noble goes on to say, he says, we treat the more efficient method as a moral obligation. Why wouldn't you do the thing that produces the most results? Why wouldn't you do the thing that provides the best possible outcome? But the phrase self-care, as most elements, especially as we are in the midst of Black History Month, we can sort of take survey as So many elements of American culture seemed to be was initially this phrase self-care was initially coined by a black woman Audre Lorde and Audre Lorde a a poet a thinker a writer she said caring for myself is not self-indulgence it is self-preservation and that is an act of political warfare strong Audre Lorde was a black woman in the 20th century amidst a society that she often experiences hostile to her very existence to the color of her skin And to the level of her intellect, she knew that even to maintain a sense of self was a fight, an act of defiance against oppression and hatred that was arrayed against her. Self-care is moving us into this sense of what does it mean to be a self in the face of a world that that would minimize us into techniques, into the most productive units that we could be. Teresa of Avila was another woman of seeming insignificance in the culture that she lived. Living as a nun in a Carmelite order in 15th century Spain, she experienced a three-year illness that largely kept her confined to solitude. And later in her life, she would go through an intense second conversion to Jesus where she would completely devote her life to prayer and to establishing these convents where people could do the same. And Teresa writes so poignantly of the soul because she'd spent so much time with Jesus, so much time being exposed to the inner workings of her own life. And she says of the soul, the soul is an interior castle, a castle made entirely of diamond or of a very clear crystal in which there are many rooms. And Teresa, when she talks like this, she's not trying to paint an image. She's trying to say, this is what I've seen because she spent so much time with Jesus. Jesus. And in the middle of this crystal cathedral, in the very center and middle is the main dwelling place where the very secret exchanges between God and the soul take place. Teresa, as she grew in intensity of devotion, didn't become this like stoic, horrible person to be around. Teresa's devotion made her more playful, more joyful. It made her the kind of person that you'd want to have at your dinner table. And it's the many rooms of the soul that she describes that we want to attend to today. Those rooms that are adjacent, that are powered by that room that's at the center. That room that is the exchange of a secret life with God that works itself out in our lives. How do we live? How do we care for ourselves? What does it mean to maintain a self in a world that would minimize us into productivity units? What does self-care in the way of Jesus look like? Is it self-indulgent? Is it self-preservation? Is it something else, something more? Now, there's an interesting sequence of events in the life of Jesus found in Matthew chapter 14. I think this gives us a beautiful insight into what caring for ourselves in the midst of life's circumstances and pain truly looks like. So I'm going to invite you to turn over Matthew chapter 14. The text will also be on the screen over here. Beginning in verse 6, it says, On Herod's birthday, Herod was the local ruler at the time. He was kind of a sort of a puppet governor, if you will. Uh, the Romans were really in charge, but they let Herod play like he was in charge. And he did have some level of authority, as we're going to see. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Now, I don't know what you asked for your birthday, but that's a little strong. The king was distressed. Herod liked John the Baptist, as we see in another of the gospel accounts. But because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her requests be granted. And had John beheaded in the prison, his head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. Again, again. Sort of weird to be carrying that around, but different culture. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. Now, notice the circumstances that are unfolding here. And I I will forever, as long as I get the, the joy and the honor of being your pastor, I will forever be reminding you of this, the mystery of the incarnation. Jesus was fully God. He did amazing things. He was also fully man. He had friends, he laughed, he played, he experienced joy and sorrow. And today we see him at this moment in a place of deep sorrow. From an earthly vantage point, John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. Jesus will later say of John the Baptist that he was the greatest man ever born of a woman. Jesus loved John the Baptist. That was his friend. And the news of John's death at the hands of Herod is not just a blip on the divine radar where Jesus is like, I know I'm going to resurrect everybody. And so, you know, momentary pain, long-term gain, it's all going to be okay. No, this news deeply affects Jesus. And I think this scene as we get into it today is such a powerful witness to what it means to care for ourselves because what we see at this point in Jesus' life is Jesus is engaging in the rhythms of self-care at a point where he is deeply broken and distressed. He's in deep grief. And I think we have to, when we look at Jesus as our empowering model, Jesus isn't just an example for us to follow. We don't just try to live his life. He actually gives us his life. He gives us the power to live out our lives as if he is animating us, his spirit, But as we see this, we see that Jesus didn't have this like amazing life that was so easy and thus he was able to commune with God in this sort of deep contemplation and bless people out of that. No, Jesus lived in the throes of the pain of everyday life, the grief that we all feel. Now, Matthew doesn't give us the timestamps for the sequence of events that we're going to look at today, but a natural reading of Matthew 14 would suggest that these events happen fairly close to one another that we're going to see unfold. Now, I, I want to say one thing as your pastor here. If you are experiencing deep grief, the death of a loved one, as Jesus experiences here, the death of a dream, this is not a talk saying to you, pick yourself up and get to work. Even though we're going to see some elements of Jesus doing that, and I think we have reasons for that. This is not me saying to you, okay, like you have this deep sadness. Now get up and and get off your feet and go do something with your life. This is not what this talk is about. We have the book of Job, the Psalms, among so many others of the biblical witness to, to the slow spiral of grief. But what I want to highlight to us today is that Jesus is not immune from the deep pain of our world. He was not a theological robot, like spitting out commandments and dogma. He was a man who loved his friends, who grieved their absence and their loss, and who cared for himself and the world in the midst of it all. And that's so important. And so today, I simply want to look at three ways that Jesus practices self-care in this moment, this moment of grief. And these are not an exhaustive list. There are other ways to care for yourself. But I do think they're a vision and an invitation to see how Jesus invites us to care for ourselves. So how does Jesus respond to the report that his friend has been killed? Verse 13 says, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. Now, the first thing that we see about self-care in the Jesus way is that we are not responsible or burdened for caring for ourselves alone. Jesus goes to grieve alone and to be restored in the presence of God, removing himself from the crowds and even his friends for a time in order to pray, to weep, and to receive. We need a place to just be. And it's no small coincidence, we've talked about this a lot, that the defining piece of technology that is in most of our pockets almost eliminates that as our default. Just think, like 50 years ago, if you didn't have other people around, you didn't really have many options other than to be alone with your thoughts, right? You were just kind of there, and your feelings. Now, you have infinite options, like BuzzFeed quiz. Cool, that's great. Wordle, now we're talking. (laughs) Got it in three, no, just kidding. there's this element to which our very operating system of our world sort of presses against us being alone with our thoughts. Now again, not a bad thing in and of itself, but the first thing we see Jesus do to care for himself is to go and to be alone. And this is a profound act in the midst of all that he's enduring. And so silence and solitude is a place where we care for ourselves because it's a a place where we discover ourselves It's a place where God has our full attention. Next, when Jesus, in verse 14, when he landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them. And he healed their sick. Now remember what Jesus is going through. Jesus comes out of this solitary place and he sees the crowds. Notice his reaction. Not that I don't have time for this right now. He has compassion on them. And it says he healed their sick. At Verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. They said, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. Bring them here to me, Jesus said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and he broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides the women and the children. Now, It may seem like a bit of a, like, Jesus juke to say, the best way to care for yourself is to care for others, right? Welcome to church. (laughs) Tricked you. But last week, we talked about vocation, understanding your purpose. You were created with a God-given purpose to know God and to create beauty that serves the world out of a life that abides in His love. One of the best ways, truly, that we care for ourselves and become ourselves is by serving others. And, And friends, we know this, like, For those of us who are in, like, deep friendships, like, we know that if, if we were just to be completely about ourselves in all of those situations, we would not have many friends, and we would not know ourselves at the level we know ourselves. We would not be the person that we are. For those of us who have family members, maybe you've cared for an older family member, you care for children on a daily basis, like, you know, they bring out this sort of friction point where you're like, I would really selfishly like to not deal with that, but there is nobody else. And so out of compassion and out of love, we move towards them. We know this at a heart level, that this is what we are called to. And Jesus shows us in this instance and throughout his life that we find ourselves by dying to ourselves. It's interesting that our version of self-care is, to quote Audre Lorde, often self-indulgence, right? Right? We opt out of church. We opt out of community. Oh, we don't have time beyond the work that we're normally doing. We mostly languish away on social media, watching Netflix. But here, Jesus offers us a different vision. We see... Out of the deep well of a life with God, even at a moment of profound pain, Jesus is in deep grief. Jesus is moved by compassion, and out of that compassion creates a stunning feast of beauty for the world. We've talked about earlier in the series about Jesus' own sense of differentiation and limits. So I'm not saying self-care is you trampling all over your own limits. We see Jesus exercising this level of differentiation throughout his life. He is not prone to the whims of everybody around him, but his deep compassion moves him. But I think, especially for us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, we need a recalibration of our culture's view of self-care. I think sometimes we, uh, we use self-care as a way, a means of, of getting out of the hard things that God is calling us into. And Jesus shows us that one of the ways that we exercise self-care is by giving out of compassion and love. And again, all caveats of limits applied here, right? Because we've talked about that earlier in this series, and I encourage you, you can catch up online if you're so interested. The last point about self-care that we see today in Jesus' life may seem both surprising and totally obvious all at once. So first, again, We see Jesus in the refuge of solitude. He sends his disciples ahead on the boat that they were using. But that's not all. This time, out of this deep well of solitude, Jesus doesn't just come and bless the world. He does something incredible. Look in verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. He's all alone again. He says, and I sort of went to the secret place. I gave out of the compassion. I gave out of that deep well of grief. And now I need to be alone again. And then, it says, later that night he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And it says in verse 25 Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to his disciples that were sailing on the lake. Walking on the water. Now, verse 13 tells us that Jesus is not opposed to riding in boats. This was not Jesus' common mode of transportation, right? Like, I think if we're honest, if we were Jesus and you could walk on water, people would be like, hey, you want to get in the boat? You'd be like, I'm good. Thank you. I'll be right behind you guys. Like, or, or just flying. I mean, Jesus is not opposed to riding in boats. But now, in this moment... With all the things that are going on in his life, Jesus decides that he's going to walk on water. Now, a couple of things. If you read Matthew's gospel closely, and this is a beautiful way to read the scriptures, is to pay attention to who's writing and what was their experience of Jesus. Matthew was an apprentice of Jesus, formerly called Levi. He was a tax collector in his previous life. He was somebody who benefited off of the oppressive systems of the society that Jesus lived in. And Matthew left all of that behind to follow Jesus. But Matthew, during the course of his earthly life and during the course of Jesus' earthly life, was spent so much time with Jesus, being with him, learning from him, observing him. And one of the things that Matthew observed about Jesus is that Jesus loved the water. Like, I, I challenge you, if you read Matthew's gospel at one sitting, uh, it's, I think it's 28 chapters, and just pay attention to how often Jesus is walking alongside the water. Jesus loved the water. It's a place of restoration, of joy for him. Jesus surrounded himself with fishermen. I think Jesus secretly wanted to be a fisherman. Like even the the, the story where he first meets Peter and he's like telling them how to fish is is quite brilliant. Because these were people that deeply knew how to fish. Jesus is like, oh, put your net over there and you'll catch some more stuff. Matthew observes about Jesus that he just loves the water. Because again, mystery of the incarnation. Fully God, fully man. But what Jesus does here in Matthew 14 is beyond simple restoration. What Jesus does here is extra. Gratuitous, abundant, it's playful. I love the scriptures, friends. They are my lifeblood. I'm still sort of in awe that I get to do this every week, to teach these stories in this context. And and I want you to know that what I'm going to describe here is not explicit in the text. It's not uh, you know sort of, oh, we can see in this Greek tense that this is definitely what's going on here. But I do think there's a way of reading the scriptures that is not against the grain of what is going on in the story. And so I'm not going to sit here and say, if we translate this word, if we look at it this way, that it's absolutely right there, clear as day. But what I do want to say is, what I'm going to invite you into as a means of self-care from this text in Matthew 14 is absolutely with the flow of what we see in Matthew 14. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, what has transpired during Jesus' moments of solitude that just inspired him to say, you know what? The disciples are already on the boat. I'm just going to walk across the lake. I remember vividly when I became a Christian when I was 17 years old. I remember this visceral sense of joy that if, if you have sort of my chemical makeup was like, was definitely noticeable because it was like a deep resounding joy, Enneagram four, like level joy. And I came back from the meeting where I was just like, Lord, I, I'm going to serve you with my life, 17 years old. And in the house that I grew up in, there was this wooden banister that was wide that, that was, uh, took us down the stairs. And so lining the stairs, wooden banister, and I was upstairs in my room. And I don't know why I did this to this day other than this deep sense of joy. But I just decided I was going to slide down the banister. And I did. And like I had super cool like, early 2000s jeans on, which most of you guys are wearing in here again. <laughs> and I had this like little rivet on the back of my jeans, and in sliding down this wooden banister, I just put this giant scrape all the way down. My mom came, and she asked me what, what happened. And I, well, because I'm a Christian now, I had to be like, well, I slid down the banister. And don't ask for an explanation. But this sense of joy led me to an expression of play. Dr. Stuart Brown, a researcher and medical doctor, wrote a book simply called Play. And in his book, he looks at why and how people play. Now, Dr. Brown approaches everything from an evolutionary biology perspective, which causes him to look for a reason for every single expression of play, that there are evolutionary advantages. And I always want to say, when we approach stuff like that, it's probably not less than that, The beautiful thing when you have a theology of a God who does things that are just extra and gratuitous and beautiful just because they're beautiful is you don't have to explain it all the time. And so Dr. Stuart Brown is explaining, okay, here's why people play. And I'm sitting there reading it. I'm like, you know why we play? Because we serve a playful God and we are made in his image. Dr. Brown writes about play. He says, I don't think it is too much to say that play can save your life. It's certainly a salvaged mind. Life without play is a grinding mechanical existence organized around doing the things necessary for survival. Play is the stick that stirs the drink. It is the basis of all art, games, books, sports, movies, fashion, fun, and wonder. In short, the basis of what we think of as civilization. Play is the vital essence of life. It is what makes life lively. And then Dr. Brown offers us some characteristics of play. And then we'll get into just maybe, maybe how does play intersect with your own life. He says of play. He says play, first of all, is voluntary. You'll want to do it. Right? Like you enter into it not out of compulsion, but because it sounds awesome. It sounds great. There's an inherent attraction. Again, that sense of joy, like that, that joy that's outside of you that you want to enter in. There's a freedom from time. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you're having the best time. You're playing a game, and it seems like the time flies by so quickly. And in that freedom from time, there's a diminished consciousness of yourself. If you've ever watched a story, maybe you've watched all the Harry Potter movies in on in or Lord of the Rings. You sat there like you you sort of have immersed yourself in the story to a degree where you kind of forget where you start and the story ends. There's an improvisational potential, right? Like, when we play, and this is what Dr. Brown was talking about in that quote, like, we, we learn. You know, they, they're talking about, I know many of you have been a part of those t- terrible, like, corporate team-building events where they're trying, like, this, like, the forced play. It's like, if we play, we're going to be more efficient workers. And It's like, well, maybe you just play just because playing together is, like, it's beautiful, and as a manager, that might be something that you can incorporate into your corporate culture, not to make people more productive, or because when people are slightly happier, they're 10% more, you know, more productive and better employees. There's also the continuation desire. You don't want it to stop. And again, I know we've all had this experience Dr. Brown then devotes part of his book to what he calls the eight play personalities. And I I think this is a beautiful invitation to know ourselves and those closest to us as we're talking about self-care and to begin to understand how to play well. Dr. Brown writes, and these are just broad categories. And he says, look, like you may have one of these that's sort of more dominant, but this is not like a new Enneagram where it's like you're a Joker wing competitor or something like that. It's, this is all just like what, what gives you life? What brings you joy? So I, I want to walk through a couple of these. First, the Joker. Anybody have a practical Joker in their life? Like anybody have a practical Joker that takes things too far? That's good. That, that's the only kind of practical joker that exists. Is like you have to like cross the line well past it to figure out where the line was. But the joker, somebody who's, you know, whether it be terrible puns and you're just like, you have to do the like, you know, just the conciliatory like, ha, 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 okay, funny. Um, or it's just like somebody that's always got something that they're working on. The kinesthete, Anybody like to dance or to move? Like maybe that's your, yeah, right? Anybody like not to dance? <laughs> The DJ at the wedding gets up, you're like, oh God, okay. Uh, the explorer. Anybody have ever had the experience of just like, I'm gonna wander through this town that I've never been to and find what I find? I'm much more of an indoor explorer myself. I know there are some of you that go to like the far reaches of the Outback and are like taking a piece of flint and you know, you eat what you kill, that kind of I know you're that kind of people, but. But for me, it's like a, a nice Roman or an Italian town that I've never been to on the coast. Uh, that sounds much more interesting to me. The competitor. Speaking of Wordle, it's good stuff. Uh, Courtney and I, during the, uh, the pandemic, got into playing Bananagrams. And that was, that was just a moment of deep joy for me, even though she would beat me <laughs> frequently. Oh, the collector. Oh, let's go, actually, let's go to the director. Directors enjoy planning and executing events for other people, just like setting the table for them and having a sequence of events that plays out. Beautiful stuff. The collector, the thrill of the hunt and the acquisition. Any any of you collectors? Any of you have like a, a little collection? And it's not just when you acquire the thing. It's actually the search for the thing, right? It's beautiful stuff. The artist, the creator. Any of you just a... Uh, the, the idea of a brilliant night at home is sitting around playing music or, you know, looking, going to an art museum. The storyteller. This can be, uh, some, of, some of us as we're receiving stories, some of us just like, our idea of fun is putting on a movie. And like, that is what we want to do on a Friday night. For others of us, we want, to, we want to curate stories and tell them in such a compelling way that people can find life and rest in them. Again, these are, these are personalities that Dr. Brown has observed in his research. But I think, like, and, and, the, and the point of me sharing this with you today is I just want to encourage you to start. Like, even if you were to pick these up and be like, okay, like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try on this hat for a while. But I think I think the world would be blessed if Christians were much more joyful and playful. Dr. Brown says we tend to fall into one to three of these dominant categories. But I just want to invite you, maybe take some time to reflect and maybe put into action what is the play personality. Because Jesus walking on the water is a deep theological witness to the power of play. Remember, Jesus was grieving at the death of his friend. And in the first century, the deep water where Jesus is walking upon was associated with chaos, disorder, and death. It's why in Revelation, if you ever read the end of the story, it says in Revelation 21 and 22, it says the sea will be no more. Again, as we've already talked about, Jesus likes the water. He's not like, okay, finally we can get rid of the ocean. Like, and if any of our pictures of heaven, like I think for many of us, they involve like, a nice sunny day at the beach at some level, right? Jesus is there too, but like, let's go to the beach when all things are made new, right? Jesus is not saying that the water is in and of itself bad, but what there, there's this symbolic association in this culture. Because again, think of how little we know about the deep water, even in our age, of technological advancement. And so for them, this was a place of chaos, a place of disorder and death. God is not going to do away with the oceans. But what Revelation 21 and 22 are saying is that this new creation is where all that threatens humanity, all the chaos and disorder will be forever vanquished. And I think, and this is where I'm reading into the text and being very honest about that, I think in Matthew 14, as Jesus spent time communing with his father, he was strengthened by the promises of God. The promises that death does not get the last word. Jesus emerging from the secret place with his father, grieving his friend to traverse the waters, is his holding the future in the midst of the painful present. Saying that this last word that was spoken over John's life is not the last word because Jesus makes all things new. And out of that deep and beautiful truth, Jesus gets up from the secret place. He looks at the water and he says, You know what? Not a boat today. Not a boat for me. I'm just going to walk right across it. Because Jesus was who he is and he's calling us and he's bearing witness to a life that endures forevermore. This is our ultimate mode of self-care, Ecclesia, that we allow ourselves to be held in the hands of the God who promises that it's all going to be okay. And you look at the beauty that Jesus creates, a feast for a world starving, a, a miracle moment that we still are just compelled and in awe of today. Out of our deep life with God, the world will be blessed and they will not just be blessed by our missions, strategies, not just be blessed by the fact that we have this urge and impulse to serve those around us, our neighbors, but they will be blessed by our joy. Jesus shows us a model for self-care, and today I just want to simply proclaim this gospel to you, that death does not get the last word. And Jesus, because of the self that he cultivated during his earthly life, because of the life that he led, which would lead him to a cross, Jesus offers this self to us with all of its joy, all the fullness of heaven being brought into this moment right now. And so we are invited to care for the precious self that God has given each one of us. Not because it's self indulgent Because it's through our life with God that the world is blessed, that beauty is created. So friends, I invite you, look at Jesus' way of self-care. Step into it, receive it today. Receive his life, his forgiveness, his joy. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up as I pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we thank you for the beautiful witness of who you are, God. Lord, that your life, every single bit of it was an expression of your kingdom. God, an expression of your forgiveness that you have ultimately won for us on the cross that we receive as a free gift. But God, that it also was an expression of the resurrection life that when we receive that forgiveness that we begin to live into right now. God, a life of joy even in the midst of pain that doesn't minimize or discount the horrible things that we experience in this life, but puts them in the light of your eternity and resurrection, God, Lord, that by your scars, by your wounds, we are healed, and behold, you make all things new. Jesus, we ask that you would help us have a sense of ourselves, Lord, that sees the precious gift that each one of us are so that we could bless the world as Jesus does here in this text with food, God, with physical nourishment and so that we could live beautiful stories as Jesus does. A story so compelling that the world takes notice, Jesus. So help us to play, God. Help us to give out of a life with you. Help us to be a people after your own heart we pray and we ask all these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, over the next couple minutes, we're going to just stand and respond. And I just invite you to to contemplate, like, what is God calling you into? And then after that, we're going to move to the table. And during that time, we'll have some people that are in the back that will be willing to pray for you. Uh, You can just walk towards the exit sign in the back. They'd love to listen to your story. I I just want to invite you, if you want to receive, just, you're like, that life is something I couldn't even begin to fathom. Jesus has it for you right now. All you have to do is reach out and say, I want that. That's for me. So let us stand, let us worship, let us sing in response, and then after that we will move to the table. We pray, come Holy Spirit. Would you show us the truest part about us is that part that longs deeply eternally for you we thank you for your presence here in this place lord would you make us new god would you compel us on would you show us where you're calling us to move to let go to surrender lord jesus and even to play we love you jesus receive these offerings of worship